Well, good morning, everyone. Um, it's my pleasure to open the Word of God with you this morning. Just as we begin, what, what could be more foolish and what could be more futile than trying to conceal something from an all-knowing, everywhere-present God? Right? What could be more foolish and what could be more futile than trying to conceal something from an omniscient and omnipresent God? Nothing. That's foolish. That's idiotic, right? But we do, in our sin, attempt to do that. Even as believers, we do. Today, we're going to take a one-week excursion, a diversion from our study of the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to take a look at the 51st Psalm, and we're going to encounter King David at the, at finally the end of a long and lengthy period of time wherein he attempted to do just that, to conceal his sin not only from others, but ultimately from God, who is omniscient and omnipresent, and that cannot be done. Um, you'll see that the title of the message today is David's Prayer of Confession. That is what it is. Right below that, however, there's a subtitle, and it says, Confessing Our Sin to Our Compassionate God. And so right, right away, I'm telling you that we're going from David and his confession, and we're going to talk about our confession of our sin to our compassionate God. So that raises the question, will everything in this psalm apply directly to us? And the answer is no, it won't. It will radically and helpfully apply to us, but not every detail that we're going to see together in Psalm 51 is going to apply to us directly. There will be some distinctly Old Testament and Old Covenant elements that we'll see David pray as the king of Israel repenting very publicly that we won't draw a direct line from him to us. For example, he will say something like, Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. We will have to address, is that something that a New Testament believer should be afraid of and should pray? Uh, spoiler alert, no. <laughs> but we'll look at why, and we'll see why that is as we go through the text. When we're talking about confession, brothers and sisters, what exactly is confession? Confession is a word, it simply means to agree or to say the same thing. If we have a confession of faith, it is a body of doctrine about which we agree. So to confess your sin is to, as one person has put it, helpfully I think, agree with God about your sin and to side with him against it. I think that's helpful. It's not, a, it's not a mere, like a dispassionate agreement. It's not merely an acknowledgement that, that the law of God indicts us on our sin, in our sin and we say, yes, I agree, moving on. No, no, no. It is, it is, is in a, a, an agreeing with God about what he says about your sin and my sin, the seriousness of it, the severity of it, and siding with him against it. 
Confession is something I think that is often overlooked even as we live our lives as believers. Three words that come to mind, this isn't in your outline or anything, but, but in the life of a Christian, confession is a weapon, it is a gift, and it is a fruit of faith. What I mean by weapon is, is it is a means by which we actually fight against sin. See, we, we, in this life, we will not escape a Romans 7 reality. We, every day, as new creations in Christ, desire to obey him except for when we don't and fall flat on our face. And then we seek the Lord's forgiveness and we, we, we hate that and we look forward to the day when that will be no more and not true of us anymore. But right now, that's how things are. And so confession, confessing our sin to the Lord quickly, not lingering, not holding it, not cherishing it, not letting it wear us down and destroy us as David did for such a long time is a vital weapon in the fight for holiness. It's also a gift. When the weekender went out this week, we said in the text at the beginning that everyone who does not know Christ seeks to cover their own sin in some way, whether ignoring it, whether by turning the throttle up to 10 on their sin, whether pursuing self-righteousness and false religion. Everyone seeks to cover their own sin, but believers know that we can't, and we have come to the Lord to seek that he might cover our sin. And when we pour our hearts to him in confession, that is a gift that he has done for us by his grace. And finally, just as terms of preliminary thoughts, confession is a fruit of faith. It is a fruit of faith. A text for this would be 1 John 1, 9, which you can look at later, but you'll see there that those who confess as a constant thing demonstrate that they are the ones who have received the cleansing, i.e. the new birth. Those who have been made new and have been regenerated and given faith turn to the Lord in confession of their sin. It is a strategy of the enemy of our souls that we would through temptation rush to sin and then through shame recoil from confession. And brothers and sisters, it should be exactly the opposite of that. It is a strategy of the enemy of our souls that when we rush into sin due to temptation, we would then, because of shame, be reluctant to go to our Father and confess that to him. The exact opposite ought to be true. David, just to review a little bit of context, David waited so long before we get to this text that he penned in Psalm 51. He waited the better part of a year at least. Remember what? Just a few short weeks ago when we were in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12, remember what happened? David sees Bathsheba. He is not doing what he's supposed to be doing. He sees her. He sends for her. He takes her. He commits adultery with her. He lies to cover it up. He ends up getting her husband Uriah murdered in order to cover his sin. And this starts the, basically the crumbling of David's kingdom that the Lord had given him. And Nathan, rather, the prophet, comes to David and, and confronts him. And David uh, turns and repents, but he's... Yahweh says to him through Nathan that the sword then would never depart from his house. And we began to see how violence began to just pull David's house apart with the death of his 
son and then with the murder of his daughter by one of his other sons and the rape of his half-sister Tamar. It was a gigantic, horrible mess. And David did not, did not yield and confess his sin to the Lord for at least, as best as we can tell, about a year. The psalm that Andrew read for the scripture reading this morning, most scholars think that he wrote a good deal after Psalm 51. It is a bit more of a looking back and a reflective type of a feel, but Psalm 51 seems to be something that David would have penned quite soon after Nathan came to him and confronted him, and he turned in confession and repentance. So we're going to look at that together today. Something I do have to tell you, though, about confession. Sometimes we, as Christians, are a little bit sloppy and a little bit careless in terms of talking about what actually happens when we confess our sin. And we say things that aren't quite true. Let me give you some examples, okay? These are not reasons that we confess our sin as believers. Confess your sin to, quote, get right with God. Confess your sin to, quote, restore fellowship with God. Confess our sin to, quote, get back into God's blessings. Have you ever heard any phrases like that? Have you ever said any phrases like that? I, I have. But let's think about this. If you are a believer in Christ, if you are in Christ, united to him by faith, can your fellowship with God as an objective reality be broken? It cannot. Can you, as an objective reality, if you are in Christ by faith, be not right with God objectively and positionally? The answer is no, you can't. But what does happen is our experience of and our joy in those realities gets radically disrupted and destroyed when we cherish sin in our hearts rather than confessing it to the Lord. We are still His. Our fellowship with Him is unbroken because Christ's fellowship with the Father is unbroken and we are in Him. Yet our experience of and the blessings that come to us and the joy that comes to us from that is radically disrupted. But they never stop being true. And it is that fact, brothers and sisters, that our union with Christ cannot be disrupted Far from being the thing that would cause us to be casual or slow to run to our Father in confession is the only thing that draws us to Him with full assurance of faith that we might confess sin to Him again for the 10,000th time. That's the reason. So the overall takeaway, and we're starting with like the takeaway this morning, we're about to read the text in its entirety, is, brothers and sisters, we should not lose heart in coming to our forgiving God and Heavenly Father to confess our sin to Him, that we should not seek to conceal it, we should not seek to hide it, we should be eager and run to Him, and we should do it daily, moment by moment. If you haven't already, open your Bibles with me to Psalm 51. I didn't make a note of the page number. 
but if you're using a pew Bible, I'm sure you can find it. Psalm 32 was 462, so I'm going to guess a few pages after that. Let's read the text together, okay, in its entirety. Psalm 51. This is God's word. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all of my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is God's word. As we begin, notice I read the superscription to the psalm. The superscriptions, not the titles in your English Bible, but the superscriptions are part of the original inspired text. And thus we see the context, as I've already laid out for you, but it said to the choir master. Now just notice this hymn, hymn, this psalm, this hymn of confession and repentance was made not just for public consumption, but for public singing, for, for use in the liturgy, in the order of worship. In God's people. This is somewhat unique. This is not some sort of template that all confession, in order for me to be legitimate, must be epically public. There are times for that when sin radically affects people and is very known and is very public, and then the confession needs to be commensurately so. But this is not giving us a template for that, but rather this is the king of Israel who represents the people and whose sin has greatly, greatly affected the nation offering a public prayer of confession and repentance. And thus, 
This was not just to be publicly read. This was to be publicly sung. As we go through this psalm, we're going to see basically five, um, sort of five sections in David's prayer. You can see them there in your bulletin. We will see an appeal to God's character. Number two, we will see an acknowledgement of the depth of sin. Number three, we'll see a request for cleansing. Number four, we'll see a response of grateful worship. And number five, we will see an intercessory prayer. So let's begin with verse one and walk through the text as we see David make an appeal to God's character. Verse one, he says, have mercy on me, O God. The word for God everywhere in this psalm is Elohim. The word Yahweh, God's covenant name with his people, does not appear anywhere in this psalm, although a related concept appears later in verse 1, as we'll see. But this is not David so much addressing Yahweh as the God who made the covenant with him, but Elohim, God as creator, whom he as an individual has sinned against. And he says, Have mercy on me, O God, According to, so on the basis of, and he's going to list two things, your steadfast love and your abundant mercy. Your steadfast love and your abundant mercy. Let's talk about those for a minute. That word steadfast love is often translated just like that. It is also often translated God's loving kindness. It's the word hesed. It means God's covenant-keeping love, his covenant-keeping faithfulness. One theologian has helpfully and beautifully said, it is that love to which God obligates himself savingly to his people. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, And according to your abundant mercy, literally that's the multitude of your compassions, your abundant mercies. Think about what David is doing here. He has sinned so greatly and he has held that sin in his life and clung to it and not confessed and not turned to the Lord for so long. He finally comes before the Lord and what is his plea? His only plea is God's steadfast love and his abundant mercy. God's character as a compassionate, forgiving God is all he has. He does not come with, I will do, I will change, I will transform, I will. You know, he's going to say some things like that later, but that is not the ground upon which he approaches the Lord in confession. He comes with nothing in his hand other than an appeal to God's steadfast love and abundant mercy. But brothers and sisters, think of all of the things that we often, even though we don't really believe it, substitute for that. That I do in my own heart. And I, I feel like, Lord, Please forgive me according to the greatness of my sorrow, according to the greatness of my repentance, or according to the greatness of my determination to do better. Can we not just pause for a minute and be so thankful that we do not come before the Lord on those terms? We do not come before him pleading our anything 
we come before him pleading his character and his character alone, his steadfast love and his abundant mercy. There are no preliminary steps to turning to the Lord and confessing our sin to him because his mercy comes to the believer on the basis of who he is, not on who we are determined to be next time. He says, Lord, will you blot out, verse 1, my transgression? It means to erase a writing, to obliterate it. It was used of both man and beast in the flood in Genesis. That's the kind of obliteration we're talking about. He says, cleanse me, make me clean. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Uh, Excuse me, at the end of verse 1, blot out my transgression. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He uses three words for sin, transgression, iniquity, and sin. They are synonyms to some degree, but they have a different emphasis of meaning, and I think this is helpful to us. A transgression is a, is a willful rebellion. It is a willful stepping across of the line. You see the line and you go, no, I'm stepping across that. I understand what I'm doing. I understand what the requirement is. I understand God's law. I'm doing this anyway. Willful rebellion, that's transgression. Iniquity. Iniquity just comes from a word that means to be twisted or bent. It is a wrong, twisted desire in the heart that results in the commission of a transgression. And then he says, cleanse me from my sin. That's the most common word for sin. It, it, if you've probably heard before, it literally does mean to miss the mark. And that's true as long as you understand what we're saying by that. It, it doesn't mean here was the mark, and oh, look at that, you missed it a little bit. No, 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 no. It's as in you utterly and entirely behaved opposite from the end for which God created you. To abandon the glory of God and to turn and go the other direction. It is to utterly and entirely, almost indescribably miss the mark in that sense. And David describes his sin in these ways. And he asks the Lord to cleanse him. And again, he does so on the basis of appealing to God's character of his steadfast love and abundant mercy. That is all that David has to stand on. As we keep going in verse 3, we move to our second point. We go from an appeal to God's character, and we see an acknowledgement of the depths of his sin. An acknowledgement of the depths of his sin. Look at what David says starting in verse 3. He says, for I know my transgressions. He says, oh, that word know means to know experientially. It's not just I'm aware of them. I just... I know them. Deep down in my soul, they're in the pit of my stomach. I know what my sin is. And my sin, he says, is ever before me. It's like it's right in front of me. Putting those two concepts together, he was saying that his sin is experientially conspicuous. He cannot get it out of his mind. It is right in front of his face. And then he says this, verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? Um, really? Like, what? 
dude, did he forget that he, I don't know, sinned against Bathsheba by taking her? That he, he sinned against God? He sinned against the people? He sinned against Uriah by deceiving him, then murdering him? He sinned against Joab by involving him in the plot? He sinned like this web of sin and consequences spread far and wide. How in the world could David say, against you only have I sinned? What does that even mean? Well, the second half of the verse tells us. And done what is evil in whose sight? Your sight. It wasn't that David hadn't sinned against these other people at all in any sense, but the thing that makes sin sin The thing that makes evil to be evil, to be what it is, is that it's a violation of God's holy character and his holy law. If God isn't holy, none of that is sin, is the point. Sin is against God because it's his law that's broken. And his law reflects his character, so it's his character and holiness that is defied. It's not that so many other people weren't sinned against it, didn't get grievously hurt in what David did. It's that it was God's law who was broken, that was broken. And it's the sin against God that makes evil to be the true evil that it actually is. And he says, so that, verse 4, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. That means vindicated. Like, because David is acknowledging his sin, he sinned against the Lord. Against you and you only have I sinned. All of the consequences that would come into David's life as severe but loving discipline from his father are legitimate. They're appropriate. They're right. All of the things that the Lord said would happen as consequences for his sin. This is true, brothers and sisters, in the life of you and me as believers, that consequences, loving discipline from our Father to make us more like Christ come into our life as a result of, well, when we disobey. And he doesn't do that as punishment. He does that to discipline us as a loving father would his child. Verse 5, the word behold occurs twice. And when you see that word, you're supposed to treat it like a series of exclamation points and go, what are we supposed to behold? Verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Uh, behold, take notice and be astonished. He is not saying that his mom was somehow involved in sin in his conception. He is going back to the core of his nature. And far from being an excuse, this is rather an explanation of the depth of the problem of his sin. His outward sinful actions were not in contrast to his, the sin in his heart and in his nature, but flowed from it. There is no sense of That's not who I really am when I did that. He is a fallen son of Adam, just like you and just like me. And he says, my sin goes down to my very nature. This is what plagues us, brothers and sisters, as we walk and seek to walk in obedience to the Lord. This is the whole reality of Romans 7, that while we are in terms of our new nature recreated in the likeness and holiness of Christ, that sort of intrusion of the future 
age, in terms of our new nature right now, we still walk around in this body of flesh and we have this sinful nature and that it trips us up at every turn. And that doesn't get better. That gets destroyed when the Lord takes us to be with him or comes back for us. But until then, we deal with it. And we understand that we fight against that. And David was saying, this sin is a symptom of the nature that I have as a sinner. And then he says this in verse 6. Behold, again, so take notice of this. Look and be astonished. You delight in truth in the inward being. Inward just means your inner person, the core of your nature. Oh, no. This is, this is bad. The two behold statements, behold, I was brought forth in sin. Sin goes down to my very nature. And behold, that's precisely where you, Lord, desire absolute truth, integrity, and obedience. That is a good statement, but that is not good news for a sinner, is it? Precisely where we are sinful in our nature is precisely where God demands absolute obedience. And David is, is acknowledging that he cannot meet that standard. The last part of verse 6 says, after you delight in truth and the inward being, you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Secret heart is basically just a synonym for your inward being. It is admittedly, and people argue about this one, a little bit tough to see what David's saying. Some people take the view that that means that, that God, however, even though he still has this sin nature that God teaches him wisdom in his heart and causes there to be growth and everything. And that's true. It's 100% true. But it doesn't really seem to fit with the context. That word that you teach me wisdom is the same exact word in verse 3 when he said, for I know my transgressions. So the idea, the idea is that, oh, by the way, that word is also used to describe how God in creation puts the knowledge of him and wisdom into men's hearts. You can see that in Job 38. The idea is that God has made David to know and understand that the sin that he committed was against wisdom and knowledge, which God had not only revealed to him outwardly in his word, but also inwardly in his spirit. So this confession, this acknowledgement of the depth of sin is not some shallow, brief, trite, yeah, I messed up. This is David's acknowledgement that the sin that he did was not in contradistinction to his sinful nature, but it was because of it. And the problem goes so deep that without rescue, he has no hope. Well, then things change. We arrive at verse 7, and from verses 7 to 12, we see a request for cleansing, a request for cleansing. Now, bear in mind, this is this is David speaking as a child of God. This is a prayer of confession, not a prayer of conversion. And he is going to ask the Lord for so many things. He's going to make 12 requests of God in verses 7 to 12. 
And we might expect that in light of what he had done and in light of how he had just acknowledged the depth of his sin, we might expect sort of a posture of timidity or reluctance in what he asks of the Lord. But in fact, we see the opposite. We, when, I, when I read these requests for you, it makes me think of the passage in Hebrews where we are instructed to draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive grace to help in time of need. When is our time of need? When we've fallen flat on our face in sin. That's when. Let's just take a quick overview of the things David requests of the Lord. Let your eyes glance down at verse 7, and we'll just go across the surface here quickly. Verse 7, purge me. Verse 7, wash me. Verse 8, let me hear joy. Verse 8, let the bones you have broken rejoice. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins. Verse 9, blot out. Verse 10, create in me. Verse 10, renew. Verse 11, cast me not away. Verse 11, take not. Verse 12, restore to me. And then verse 12, uphold me with a willing spirit. Request after request after request, boldly asking the Lord that he might be cleansed. These are only, these are things rather, that only the Lord could do in his life. These are things, these words, purge me, wash me, cleanse me, these are only things that the Lord can do in the life of a believer. It is God who accomplishes these things. Let's go back through and let's talk about what each one means, okay? Verse 7, he says, purge me. Purge me, is the, it's the same root as sin, but it's changed to kind of make it the opposite. He's literally saying, Lord, unsin me. Purge me of this. But he doesn't just say purge me. He says purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. This is no accidental choice of a word picture, of vocabulary. What is hyssop? Hyssop is a leafy plant that was used and prescribed to be used in the temple ceremonies where the blood of the sacrifice would be sprinkled on the altar and on the implements and all over the place, basically. Do you remember perhaps the first time that we see hyssop being used, being instructed by the Lord to be used to put blood on something? Exodus. Exodus. God first commanded that hyssop would be used to spread blood on the doorposts and the lintel. That's just the part that goes across the top. So basically on the door of the homes of the Israelites in Egypt when the angel of the Lord passed through and therefore their firstborn would be spared. That's the imagery that David is accessing here. Where did the blood that was spread by the hyssop during the Passover, where did that come from? It, became, it came from the sacrificial unblemished lamb that they slaughtered at Passover, right? So this, far from being just a pretty word picture, this is David 
asking to be cleansed, but based on his choice of biblical imagery, he knows that that cleansing can only come through the sacrifice of an unblemished substitute. That's the point. That's what the sacrificial system was to teach them. We know on this side of the cross that the ultimate and perfect unblemished lamb who shed his blood for us as the last and final Passover lamb was the Lord Jesus Christ. But the imagery of the shedding of blood of an unblemished sacrifice being required for his cleansing is here when he says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. He says, wash me. It's a laundry term to get the stain out. And I shall be whiter than snow. The scripture does use that language often to talk about the purity that comes after the Lord cleanses us. Prophet Isaiah, in familiar words, says, Come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Verse 8, David says, Let me hear joy and gladness. That word here, it's the same, it's Shema, it's the same word that in Deuteronomy 6.4 we read, Oh, uh, hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. It's not just the kind of hearing like let this pass into my ears, but let me, let me truly hear and internalize again joy and gladness. Joy and gladness. Brothers and sisters, when we as believers, when we hold on to our sin, when we know we've sinned against the Lord, and because of shame we are reluctant to go to him and confess, what happens to our joy? It's decimated, isn't it? It's crushed. It's taken. It's stolen. Our identity in Christ is intact. Our salvation is intact. Our objective fellowship with the Lord is intact, but our joy evaporates. And David is saying, Lord, cleanse me and let me again hear joy and gladness. Then he says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. That word broken, it may mean literally broken, but it literally means, it, it actually just means crushed. Since it's metaphoric, you heard when Andrew read Psalm 32, he said when he held on to his sin that his bones wasted away. I don't think that literally meant that his bones were rotting inside of him. He's talking, he's painting a picture saying that just... The whole internal structure of his person was just languishing and suffering as he held on to his sin, sought to conceal it, and did not confess. And he says in verse 9, hide your face from my sins. That simply means to conceal. And what a turn of events that David, who had been concealing his sin for so long, now asked the Lord that he might conceal his face from his sin. But again, it's not just a please look the other way, God. It's a it's a hiding his face from his sin on the basis of the blood sacrifice that would be required for it. Then verse 10, create in me, he says, a clean heart. Create in me. That word is only ever used with God as the subject. Creation is something that only God does, whether it's the creation of the universe and speaking into existence, whether it's creating a clean and renewed heart in David, whether it's regenerating a soul when that soul looks to Christ in faith and that new nature, that heart of stone is taken out and that heart of flesh is given. Only God does that. David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew 
In other words, it was there before, renew a right spirit. The idea there is a steadfast or a willing spirit, a spirit that again longs for obedience, that longs to respond with grateful obedience to what you have done for me. Would you renew that, Lord, he says. And then we get to verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence. Presence there is this exact same word as face in verse 9. Cast me not away from your face, from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. I remember uh, growing up in high school, one of the songs we would sing was a, a Keith Green song, which I love. I love a lot of Keith Green songs. I, I can't, don't play a lot of them because they're all piano-based, and I, I can't play piano. I wish I could. There's one he said, uh, cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And that's a wonderful thing to sing if you know what it's talking about. If you know what it's talking about. So what is David talking about? First of all, should a believer be afraid that you might sin in such and such a way and the Lord responds to you by removing the Holy Spirit from you? No. An unequivocal no. First of all, three comments on this. Number one, this verse in verse 10 does not bear any correspondence with New Testament language about believers having the Spirit, being given the Spirit, being indwelt by the Spirit, or even walking by the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit. There's, there's no language correspondence at all other than Spirit between what David is saying here and those types of things that we read about the new birth in Christ in the New Testament. That's number one. Number two, we know because it's so explicitly stated in, thing, in passages like Romans chapter 8 verse 9 and Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 and 14 that every believer is irrevocably indwelt by the Holy Spirit. To not be indwelt, to not have the Holy Spirit is to not be united to Christ. Every believer is irrevocably indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 says the Holy Spirit is given as the seal, the down payment of our inheritance that we have in Christ and is the guarantee that we will receive the whole thing. It's not a revocable guarantee. And, third thing, we know and we believe that salvation has always been by faith alone and the Holy Spirit has always been the agent of regeneration in the hearts of God's people, always. We know that salvation has always been by faith alone. In Romans 4, Paul makes that argument and he uses both the words of Abraham and David to make this argument. Salvation at all times, and in all covenants, and in all testaments has been by faith alone, and it is always the Holy Spirit that regenerates the heart. There are many places we could go in the Old Testament to make that argument. But the bottom line is, whatever David is saying here, and I'm about to tell you what he is saying, he is not contradicting any of those things. David was the appointed king of Israel. Who was the king of Israel before David? Saul. How did that go? Not great. I would like to remind you of what happened 
in 1 Samuel 16. You don't have to turn there. Let me can, but just listen. 1 Samuel 16, verses 13 and 14. This is where there's sort of this secret anointing ceremony where David is going to be anointed to be the next king of Israel. And in 1 Samuel 16, verse 13 and following, we read this. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that's David, in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. We see in prophets and in kings in Israel's history the Spirit of God coming upon them to enable them to do and to be what God had called them to do and to be. Saul had sinned grievously and was not repentant and for all we can tell was not regenerate. The Holy Spirit in that capacity to bless him as Israel's king was removed from him and given to David that David would be the next and appointed rightful king of Israel. And David is saying here, Lord, I have sinned greatly. May I not be like Saul. May what happened to Saul in terms of what you have appointed me to do and to be the king of Israel and to serve you and to lead the people, may what happened to Saul not happen to me. That is a distinctly Old Testament King David element of this psalm. Verse 12 Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Boy, doesn't sin promise the very thing that it takes? It promises joy. And that's the first thing that it steals. Willing spirit again means a spirit that's inclined to obedience. So that is David's appeal to God's character, his acknowledgement of the depth of sin, and then his request that he would be cleansed Now we're going to start to see some response. And the response is absolutely amazing. Starting in verse 13, we're going to see what I'm calling a response of grateful worship. A response of grateful worship. Verse 13 starts with the word then. Okay. Here we go. What, after this great sin, David, what will be the response now that David has confessed his sin and he is assured of the cleansing for which he has asked, what will be the response based on his assurance of cleansing and pardon? We'll go in detail, but I just want to point out there are three things as an overview. Verse 13, I will teach transgressors your ways. Verse 14, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. And verse 15, my mouth will declare your praise. I will teach, I will sing, I will declare. These things, brothers and sisters, these are acts of grateful, obedient worship. These are externally facing 
others-oriented things. These are not inward, personal, private acts of piety. Rather, these are grateful, obedient acts of worship that are done as the grateful response to forgiveness that has been received and therefore the benefit and for the service of others. Did, did you know, brothers and sisters, and I know you do know, but we don't think about this a lot, your obedience, your obedience is not for you. Allow me to explain. Your, your obedience, your, my obedience is not for you. Christ, our perfect mediator, has given us his perfect righteousness, has he not? And once we know and are assured of the cleansing that we have because of him, and we know that his righteousness is given to us, we are no longer under the burden to need to obey to please God, right? So therefore, all of our obedience in the Christian life is a response of gratitude to the cleansing given and the righteousness of another, namely Christ. So that when you obey in response of gratitude to the cleansing you received, it's not for you, it's for the benefit of others. And it's not for me, it's for the benefit of others. I don't know if you've ever seen this before, but that's why when you read, like for example, the, some of the Pauline letters, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, spends the whole first half talking about what you have in Christ who Christ is for you. And then in the second half, when the commands start coming, it's so filled with one another's love one another, bear with one another, serve one another, pray with one another, or pray for one another. Next week when we see in Matthew chapter 3, we'll see that Christ at his baptism will tell John the Baptist that Permit that we would do this because it's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Who was that righteousness for? It wasn't for him. It was for us. David in verse 13. Back to David. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. David was to have led the people well, serving them well as the law-knowing and law-obeying king and to point the people to the Lord, and that it utterly stopped. But he says, Lord, by your grace that will continue again. I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. And then verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. Blood guiltiness, that literally means the guilt of blood. That's murder. That's what he had done. He said, Lord, deliver me from that, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of, and what will be the content of David's song? Your righteousness. Now that is insane. If you're still under God's judgment, God's righteousness, God's character as a holy, righteous judge, that it's your death sentence unless the penalty has been paid, unless the sacrifice has been made. He says, my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. That would be the content of his song, the righteousness of his God. This theme, 
brothers and sisters, begins to pick up steam in the Scripture. David doesn't explain that to us here. He just says it. But that theme of the content of our praise being the righteousness of our God begins to pick up steam in Scripture until eventually you get to the prophet Jeremiah. These incredible words in Jeremiah 33, 15. He says, in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch, that's Messiah, to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. Our righteousness. That is the song of the saints. The Messiah is our righteousness. And that is the content of David's song. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. No doubt in public and in the assembly at the tabernacle. Verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. No. Wait a minute. What's he, what's he saying there? Why, why would he not be pleased with that? Didn't God command those sacrifices? Sure he did. He commanded them. And, and David's going to say later in verse 19 that those sacrifices will continue. So does he mean in an absolute sense? You don't have any interest in any of that? No. He's saying that what we don't know to be true, that those sacrifices aren't the thing that pays for sin. Instead, he says in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Why? Why is it that those are the acceptable sacrifices of God? Why is it that a broken spirit, that means broken in pieces, or a contrite heart, that's the same word as broken or crushed from verse 8, why is it that those are the sacrifices of God that he will not despise? It's because only the spirit that is broken into pieces and the heart that is contrite and crushed is only that heart that is abandoned all self-righteousness, and who comes to the Lord with nothing that it might receive everything that it needs, namely the forgiveness of sin and the righteousness of another. By the way, just as a pastoral note, that word for contrite means crushed, means broken. It's the same word as I said in verse 8, and if you look at verse 8, Remember, who is the one who does the breaking, the crushing, and the convicting in verse 8? Who does it? Let the bones that you have broken, same word. You, God. God does that. And I would just encourage you as, as believers here this morning that don't, when the Lord convicts you in your sin, don't waste time thinking and wondering, boy, am I convicted enough? Am I contrite enough? Am I sorrowful enough? Am I 
repentant enough? Am I? Just go to him in confession. It's the Lord who works that in your heart anyway. I can answer all those questions for you and for me. The answer is no, probably not. Go to him in confession anyway. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That is David's response of grateful worship. Then finally, just briefly, verses 18 and 19. We see David make an intercessory prayer. An intercessory prayer. Now, these verses are interesting. And they're so interesting, and they so stand out from the rest. Some have come along later and said, oh, David probably didn't write those last two verses. They were probably added later. That's nonsense. David wrote them. But he does seem to make a left-hand turn and start talking about Zion and offering bulls on the altar. And we go, what's, what's going on here? He says, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. What I think you have here is you have David now as the repentant and confessing king. He is praying that God would bless his people as he promised to do, and that David's sin would in no way interfere with that. Now that he has confessed his sin, he is again, David that is, finally doing as he ought to do as the king of Israel whose life was prophetic and who points us to Messiah and he is interceding for his people, for Zion, for Jerusalem, and for the people of God. That's how he ends his prayer, confession. We, however, we can't end our thoughts just there because we know, as we already talked about and sung about this morning, that David, especially at the end in interceding for the people, points us to the fact that the true and better David, the ultimate and last David, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who would shed his blood and die for our sins, what is he currently doing right now for you as a believer? He sits at the right hand of the Father on high, and he always lives, Hebrews says, to make intercession for us. The one who bore our sin the one who is the answer to every request that David makes is the one who sits at the right hand of the Father and pleads the merit, as we also sang today, of his blood for us. The answer to the cleansing that David needed and received and the answer to the cleansing that we need and can receive is Christ. It is his life. It is his death it is his ascension on high, and it is his intercession for us. For those of us that know and love the Lord, what we need to see here is the compassionate, forgiving character of our God because of what Christ has done for us. May we daily, regularly, constantly Run to the Lord to confess our sin to him that we might be cleansed, that we might receive the fullness of joy 
and that we might obey in gratitude and in love for others. If you don't know the Lord, maybe you're visiting, if you're not a Christian, I would just go back to what I said at the beginning. God knows everything. There is nothing that's hidden from his sight. All concealing of sin is futile. It can only be covered by Christ and his life, death, and resurrection for you. And only by turning to him in faith can your sins be cleansed. Father, we come before you this morning and we are so grateful to see your servant David pour out his prayer of confession to you. And in that, we see your character as our God who is abounding in mercy and compassion and love and forgiveness. And may we, Lord, be encouraged and drawn by that to run to you, that we may not hold on to and cherish secret sins in our heart, that we might run to you in confession and that we would be restored to the fullness of joy, that we might be useful in service and in obedience. Father, I pray that your word would have its perfect result in the heart and life of everyone here this morning as we have gathered. And it's in Christ's name that we ask these things. Amen.